Welcome to Evidence in Action, a podcast from the Urban Institute. I'm your co-host, Sarah Rosenwortel. I have the honor of being Urban's president. And I'm your co-host, Kimberlyn Leary, Executive Vice President of the Urban Institute. In this podcast, Kim and I are going to explore the role of evidence. What it is, who makes it, who can use it, who should be using it, and how it can help us to shape policy and achieve better social, economic, and environmental outcomes. And on every episode, we'll be joined by a brilliant guest, ranging from federal policymakers, local leaders, philanthropists, social entrepreneurs, and those who meet community needs. We'll be asking them how they use facts, data, and evidence to improve lives and strengthen communities, and also about the limits of these tools in today's complicated world. On today's show, I'm sitting down with Steve Benjamin. Steve is now Senior Advisor to President Biden and Director of the Office of Public Engagement at the White House. He served three consecutive terms as mayor of Columbia, South Carolina, the first black mayor in that city's history. During his tenure, he was also elected president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors and president of the African-American Mayors Association. He brings his experience on the front line to his new role. He describes the current job as being the front door to the White House. Steve and his team interface with every aspect of the American community, business, labor, advocates. Their job is to hear what matters to people, what's happening across the country, and bring that perspective into the room where it happens. Steve, today, I know you are a high-ranking White House official, but since you're at the Urban Institute, I will address you with the title that I consider your highest calling, Welcome, Mr. Mayor. Well, thank you. I, I think Dad might top that, but I'll take. <laughs> okay, I'll take fair Mr. enough. <laughs> <laughs> All yeah. right, and and there's a partner who may also think that she, important she would, too. Yeah, I, yeah, she I would. take your point. <laughs> so you know, you and I both grew up in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just a few years ahead of you, but. Talk for a minute, if you would, about what it's like growing up in Queens and how did the New York City experience shape the person that you are today? Growing up in the city prepares you really for almost anything, anywhere. My parents were, I I, I would tell people they're migrants, that last wave of migration from the South, the warmth of other suns uh, narrative. But but Reverend Jesse Jackson years ago told me, Steve, your parents weren't migrants, they were they were refugees. They were, they were leaving an old South that they knew that their children couldn't grow up to live up to their God-given potential. And they went in search of opportunity on their own, left their, left their home, left their families for a chance to make it in the big city. And I will tell you that my formative years in, in, in New York really did help prepare me for my life to this day. Uh, there, there are lessons learned, relationships forged, the fact that my family, we were kind of on our own. It was just our nuclear family made us a stronger nuclear family. So Queens, Columbia, South Carolina, kind of different places. What was that like? Was that culture shock or had you had enough family to know it as home? It was culture shock to the nth degree. Most, most of my family, I uh, was in Orangeburg, South Carolina. I was in Columbia, not far away, 45 minutes away, but uh, for a 17-year-old who didn't have a driver's license or a car, it was a good ways away. But my, my transition and my matriculation at the university was was fairly unique in that I also was a smart kid, a very, very uh, intelligent elementary school kid who kind of got a little wayward as a as a um, junior high school student. And a high school student, I, I was just, my parents were praying over me every single day. Uh, I, I, I often uh, go and tell young people, 
I told a group of students yesterday, you know, I, I was suspended from high school twice, Sarah. I, I, I had to go to night school to, to graduate. It wasn't because of academics. I was just a, a, a bit of a handful. And thank God again, my mom and my mom and dad kept me as straight as they possibly could. But I did really, really well on the SATs. Uh, and, and that allowed me to apply to four colleges and I got into all four of them. But I got there still as a 17 year old who really wasn't ready for college. And I was incredibly fortunate, blessed, I'd say, to find some mentors uh, my first few weeks in college who just kind of covered me up, decided to help me use all that energy I had for good. And I got involved in in civil rights and social justice and community service. And uh, we were back then, we were marching to take the Confederate battle flag off the state capitol in South Carolina. We were uh, marching to free Nelson Mandela and 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 push our state pension system to divest in, in companies doing business with South Africa. It was a, a really wonderful opportunity to take all this energy and, and kind of um, leadership skills that that uh, I, I owned as a teenager in New York and, and really put them to some good use. And and thankfully, I, I found a, a welcoming community that embraced me at, at that time as a young man. I was also a 17-year-old high school graduate, and I do think New York City helps you get ready for things. It helps you gain some maturity. You started out as mayor during the Great Recession. You ended at the start of the pandemic. Probably a lot of challenges over that 12 years. What are you most proud of? I will tell you it was the most rewarding personal and professional experience that someone could have. You know, serving the city that you love, the city that really gave me everything, gave me a, 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 a career, gave me a family. My wife is from Columbia, our, our daughter's born and, and, and raised there. It was a chance to serve people who needed probably a different brand of leadership. We had a, a genuinely good man, uh, Bob Coble, who continues to serve as a, as a mentor to me to this day, who served as my predecessor. But as you mentioned, coming out of the uh, Great Recession, we were, we were dealing with some challenging times that needed some tough questions answered and occasionally really some tough votes taken. You know, we were uh, at the time, the, lar- the capital, largest city in the, in the state, facing some, uh, some systemic challenges around infrastructure. We were the most diverse city in the state as, as well. So, uh, and we're the capital. So, even if something's not happening in your city, it's happening on those 16 acres uh, that you have to work to manage whatever might flare up when, you know, when we were taking down the Confederate battle flag, the Ku Klux Klan of Western North Carolina, and the new Black Panther Party of Northern Florida decided to come and rally on the same day at the same time at the state capitol. And you're trying to find ways. You're like, okay, this is the state capitol. This is not Columbia. But trying to find ways to to manage through that in a way that doesn't allow it to seep out into the rest of the community and, and keeping people uh, together. But I will tell you, the opportunity to lead a city, and you really just have to be very thoughtful and pragmatic and focused on solving problems. And if you're lucky enough to lead the type of city that I was fortunate enough to, to lead, People give you a, a wide berth if, in fact, you they know that you're focused um, from an earnest position on actually solving problems. Mayor Tony Williams is one of our board members, uh, former mayor of D.C., and he also talks about mayors making decisions that are hard for politicians to make because they're the fruits of those decisions will come well beyond someone's political tenure, and and we know that's hard in government to not be able to always show results in the near term. How did you think about that? 
it's uh, you have to make the case. You really have to make the case. I mean, some of the decisions we made, I, I would I would uh, just say uh, Mayor Williams, was, he kind of wrote the textbook on thoughtful fiscal leadership and being able to show people that you can do the right thing for the right reason at the right time when literally people will not see the fruits of those labors right now. But being able to make a case uh, to the people that if you take good care of their resources, that yields benefits down the road. And, and, and we'll see the benefits of his leadership for decades to come. And, and that's as part of what I tried to model in Columbia. But it's not easy. I mean, especially when you when you always have this dynamic of town versus gown, you know, you're, make, you're, you're making these decisions for the university's benefit or for the downtown business suits. And I would have to sit down and I was that weird mayor. I was, I'm, a, I'm a public finance attorney by, by trade. I, I actually read our consolidated annual financial reports. And, and I think it's important to show people that you have, again, you have a respect for the for their resources and limited resources in the public purse. And that's not just the business person downtown, but that but that single mom who's trying to make ends meet uh, when she sees that you're being a good steward of her dollars. But we would get into the power of storytelling, Sarah, you know, uh, helping people understand that this investment that you're trying to make in downtown in this new 20-story building that pays 6% property taxes at the at, at this millage rate, how 63% of every one of those tax dollars that will come in off this new investment that you gave, a, you did give a bit of a tax benefit to incentivize that development, but how 63 cents of every dollar goes to the school district and how it helps kids all around the city. And this is why all the kids in the district now have iPads, because we, we were able to do this. And, and, but it, but it, does, it does require public officials who keep their eyes on the financial ball to also focus on storytelling and be able to explain to people who are, uh, who are much smarter than we think they are, uh, <laughs> be able to explain to the people who you uh, represent the importance of these decisions and, and how, again, we're investing in the future. Uh, oftentimes, we won't see the immediate benefit, uh, but it's not an easy challenge. I want to pick up on your comment about the wisdom of the community. At Urban, we do a lot of work to study how to strengthen communities, but just looking at the numbers doesn't always answer the question for you. We have to get proximate. And in many cases, the best expertise about the solutions for places come from those people who live there and have the experience every day of what works and what doesn't. So whether you were in City Hall or now in the White House, how do you stay proximate? How do you uh, connect to community to make sure that the choices that you and others are making are grounded in that expertise? Sure. Well, you mentioned the the, the remit of our office and and. and serving as the front door to the White House and all these amazing portfolios. And I'm blessed to have an incredible team that I work with every single day. And in order to stay proximate, you have to be present. You, you just got to be in the community. You have to be present. You have to make sure that everyone knows that that you're here, available, that you're doing what my grandmother would say. You know, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. You're supposed to listen twice as much as you as you talk. But then you also have to make sure you get out of the building. So you have to go to them. But it, but it really does start with having two ears and one mouth and, and fighting like you're right and listening like you're wrong. Uh, so just making sure you're taking in some of these, this amazing wisdom uh, that's out there and, and, and some wonderful examples of local leadership that properly supported in an intergovernmental, intersectoral way, smart, public, private, philanthropic partnerships, you can find some really awesome ideas that are replicable, that are scalable, up and down, you know, and solve a lot of problems in this country. 
So one of the goals of this podcast, we call it evidence to action, is talking about how insight that may come from research analysis, engaging with people, can then be put into practice to make change. So I wanted to ask you about an experience when you were mayor where you used sort of fact-based policymaking. I understood the power of being a city in, in the Deep South. South Carolina sometimes uh, gets press coverage for things that we don't want it to get co uh, press coverage for. But I knew the importance of policymaking in a city like Columbia that would give license to leaders in other places of the country that would say, they did it in South Carolina. You know, we, we can also do it here. We were really um, trying to keep our eyes on, on this epidemic of gun violence. And what happens when you have a country that has um, more guns in the street than it has human beings? The issues that I would resolve uh, with some of my childhood friends uh, in, in a fist fight in the 1980s in New York City don't get to that level anymore. It, it, it's immediately resolved by gunfire. So we, we became the first city in the country to, to ban bump stocks. I was very proud of that and look forward to continuing to see how, how other cities might follow that lead. I would say, though, I'm convinced we all suffer from some degree of maybe even PTSD as we continue to emerge from the, the darkest days of the pandemic and what that looked like. We're talking about you know, the greatest pandemic since 1918 and immediately after uh, it began starting to see dozens and then scores and then hundreds of lives lost on a daily basis, combined with probably some of the the greatest economic shock we saw since 1929. And then uh, with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, probably the greatest social unrest we saw since 1968, all wrapped up into one moment. And then when we got out of the darkest days of the pandemic, we were going to do everything we could to protect livelihoods, you know, and, uh, and that was a, a very uh, difficult time. But I would, I would, I would constantly talk about testing data, intelligence policy in that order. And then we found also one of the best things ab about following this evidence-based data informed policymaking is that we were able to build some brand new intergovernmental and intersectoral relationships that were okay before the pandemic, but nowhere near as strong as they were when we were done. I love the story you tell because in some ways you've just described our theory of change here, where we try to empower people with that kind of information and help to support finding the things that are working and help rapidly spread those to others. Sometimes we'll do work about finding a solution to a problem and that work seems to sit on a shelf. It doesn't have an audience. And yet, there are these what I call teachable moments, the moment when suddenly somebody needs for some reason to turn to that. And the pandemic was an extraordinary teachable moment when we were able to put in place things like the child tax credit expansion that literally saved millions of children from living in poverty that year whose families lost their wages. And we know the long-term effects of poverty. So there are those chances where you need to be engaged with decision makers. So when they need that information, they have the ability to access it quickly. And the, and the power to, to tell the story. And I love your storytelling. Yeah, because uh, oftentimes we get to the uh, conclusion and we kind of we forget 
all the challenges we had to get to that point and, and how it also required some unique opportunities for, yes, a profile and courage, but even more importantly, some collaboration that sometimes evades us in politics uh, nowadays, and it's pretty sad. Steve, I want to talk to you a little bit about equity. President has, from his very first day, very first executive order, made a huge focus on ensuring that we really weigh whether or not our choices are helping to lift people up, or are we exacerbating and worsening existing structural disparities in our society. And I think that's sort of implicitly how you governed as mayor and how this president has set priorities. But we also see an enormous pushback at this moment and people who argue that that, instead of bringing people together and along, is somehow divisive. And I wanted to hear how you're thinking about this in this moment. How do we move this agenda forward and build bridges while continuing to tear down the parts of our society that make it so hard for some to get ahead. The president's been very clear about his desire, uh, his deep belief that we've got to you know, build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out, and that there are unique opportunities and moments in, in, in our time where we have to not only correct uh, the wrongs of the past, whether they be through uh, social policy or infrastructure policy, transportation policy, but that this is one of those moments. And and from, yes, from the very first executive order to the cornerstone pieces of legislation that he and the vice president have uh, been able to shepherd through Congress, it uh, the, the, the principle of equity is certainly embedded and leads each and every one of them. And it has led, as you, as you indicate, to a significant conservative backlash. And I, and I, I use the word conservative loosely because I, I've worked uh, very well with a lot of strong, thoughtful conservatives who also can tell you that one plus one equals two. I sat with the president just this last week, and I will tell you, I, there, are, there are moments when I'm always proud uh, and thankful for the opportunity to work for him, um, but, but moments when you're just really proud, when he starts you know, just taking off uh, not only the not only what he, this administration has been able to do, but why he does it. The challenge is that is that it it has certainly uh, elicited the the interest of a, of a few NGOs and conservative foundations and 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 billionaires who see the world very differently, and um, we see it manifest itself in court case after court case, and, and it's going to be uh, important that he continues to do. The work that he's done in, in helping rebuild a judiciary that looks like America and, and works to, to speak to our better angels while properly interpreting the Constitution, but that we continue to move forward post-haste on implementing some of the key provisions of, of these landmark pieces of legislation. So I want to talk about one of those in particular before we wrap up. At Urban, we recently reported released a tool which allows us to look at where some of the infrastructure bill funds are being spent and to analyze how equitably some of those funds are being dispersed and how well they're supporting communities that have historically been left behind by infrastructure investments. And um, there's a lot of great stories for uh, the administration in that information, particularly in the places where the criteria for how the money is used is established through the programs. But some of those dollars are also formula dollars. And in places that need to get the money out the door quickly, many of the old patterns also we still continue to see happening. Understanding how 
different decisions influence people, allowing them to be mobilized and to activate, to be part of change in their communities, to advocate for where the dollars go, is as important as federal policymaking. How do we empower local actors to be able to be part of the conversation about how decisions are being made? As a mayor, I can imagine uh, this is something you understand uh, very well. Well, it's essential to a, a healthy working democracy. Uh, we can, you can get things done. You can get uh, things done for the right reason. But if you're not leading in a way that pulls your community along with you uh, and, and, the, and, and people feel the, the, the literal ownership that they have in the process in this federal republic, then you lost something along the way. We would go around our city, again, going to people who probably can't find the time to come to City Hall during a work day to meet with us. But I think that's so incredibly important. So you think about uh, you know a smaller city that has a very small staff. So those resources are, 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 are so key. And I think that's a key role that so much of our philanthrop- uh, philanthropic and, and nonprofit community has played in helping uh, folks access uh, information to, to receive these dollars. In a, in a thoughtful way, while at the very same time supporting the civic process uh, in thoughtful ways. Because, we, I mean, we're getting some really great things done. You're talking about, you know, a, a goal of replacing 100 percent of, of lead pipes in, in this country. You know, when we're thinking about critical access to water, you know, um, $185 million coming out of transportation of the Secretary Buttigieg uh, looking to reconnect communities that that were divided by highways 50 plus years ago destroyed communities the resources that that's being very that are being very intentionally uh, sent to communities again that haven't seen uh, the largest of, of their own tax dollars coming back home for years it's important and it's meaningful but I, I do think it's important that uh, as you mentioned that that the process, of 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 involving people on that journey is so is so important that we have to make sure that 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 is the ultimate meaning of building inclusive, uh, informed uh, societies and citizens. So let me ask one final question. It's my favorite. I ask it of everyone who joins us on this show. As you know, we are about helping people use evidence. So, do you have a favorite example of a place where? Uh, high quality evidence has informed a choice that you can trace that you can tell that story of how evidence actually led to action that led to making lives of people better. I was literally just speaking to my successor the other day, uh, but we were able to, when I was mayor, uh, work very closely with Uber and Lyft, dealing with the issue of a, a growing issue of food deserts in our community. And, and, and how people did not have access to, to, to healthy food. We saw the data. We saw the, the, the challenges with the lack of brick and mortar grocery stores being built at all. And certainly in, in some of our communities that might live in the, in the lower two quintiles of the American economic community, not uh, being able to access healthy and fresh food. So we work closely in, in, a, in, a, in a wonderful partnership with them and our regional transportation authority in which we were able to get vouchers to people to to take rides to uh, grocery stores uh, to, to get information while, uh, again, fed by good data, but but now um, also using just the power of, of technology and innovation and, and iteration. My successor has built a wonderful partnership with Instacart in which we're now having food brought to families 
who are in some in some challenging uh, periods of time. Again, smart, thoughtful public-private partnerships using public uh, and, and and philanthropic resources to um, meet people's needs. I mean, some of the very basic needs that many of us obviously take for granted are still being missed in communities all across the the, the country. So that's just one example as you think about the, uh, uh, I, I'm very proud, as you know, I'm very, I'm very proud Colombian and, and thankful. It's, it's home, it's home. And, uh, and I'm fortunate enough to maintain a good and strong relationship uh, with my successor. We, we, we're, we're from different parties, different backgrounds, but we, but we share a deep love uh, for the city and have found ways to continue to work together to make sure we meet the needs of, of the people of our city. And those are just examples that, that could be replicated anywhere. They're fed by you know, good data and good evidence. You still say we whenever you're talking about the city. We're very excited, actually, to be working with some hunger groups and one of the companies you mentioned looking at where those kinds of models might be replicated. So, um, And I didn't know you were going to use that as an example. So that's a wonderful case of evidence in action. So thank you so much. I can't thank you enough, Steve, for being with us on our new podcast. Appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much, Sarah. Join us next time on Evidence in Action as we have other conversations about important ways to drive change with captivating guests like Steve. If you'd like to learn more about us, go to our website at urban.org. You can also follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been Evidence in Action, created by the Urban Institute and Pod People. I'm your co-host, Sarah Rosenwortel. Thank you. Thank you.